have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Holy Father, we thank you that in your great love for us, you sent your Son to die for us. And we know we live in a day where his name is largely ignored. It's mocked. It's habitually used in vain. But we're so thankful that a day will come when the honor that is due his name will be fully given to every person, some willingly, some because they have to You promised that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord. Help us in this commission that you've entrusted to us in this fresh new week to be obedient, to be sensitive to opportunities that you would give us as we seek to win men and women and boys and girls to the Savior. We pray, our Father, this morning as we open your word that our hearts would be soft and pliable that you would be able to speak to us and renew our minds, that our exposure to Holy Scripture this morning would make changes that would make a difference in this life and for all of eternity. I know without you I can do nothing, but with you all things are possible. So I ask you to come and to fill me, that together by the Spirit of God we might honor your Son. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Take God's holy and infallible word, would you, and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you're joining us for the first time, before we begin our next verse-by-verse exposition through a book of the Bible, God has led me to do a series that I've entitled God's Prophetic Schedule. And as you can see from the slide or the bulletin that is in front of you, today's topic is the judgment of the just, subtitled, A Saved Soul But a Lost Life. You know, it's possible to be saved and headed to heaven. It's possible to come to church week after week, to read your Bible each and every day. It's possible, as a self-described businessman once said, to spend your whole life climbing the ladder of success, only to discover that when you reach the top of the ladder, it was leaning against the wrong wall. There is coming a day when many of God's people will realize that their ladder is leaning against the wrong wall, that they have invested only in the here and now and not things that really matter of eternal worth. Now, this diagram might help some of us to visualize where we are in this series. Right now, the Bible teaches this is the church age. The church did not exist in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke, I will build my church. And the Bible pinpoints it as starting on the day of Pentecost. But one of these days, maybe sooner than we think, the church will be completed and God will come and catch up the church. That catching up is called the rapture. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. 
Paul says we shall be caught up, harpazo in the Latin Bible. It's the word that gives us our English word, rapture. Then a seven-year period starts that will be followed as the second arrow shows with the second coming. During that time frame, it's a dark time, but it's during that time frame when we're taken to heaven that we will experience the judgment of the saved. At the end of the seven-year period of time, Christ in fulfillment of prophecy, and we will study this, he will now come to the earth. First he comes, we meet the Lord in the air, but as Zechariah 14 teaches at the second coming, he comes to the earth. His feet are planted on the Mount of Olives, and all of the promises concerning a coming kingdom that we pray in what we call the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, will be fulfilled. And at the end of that thousand years, we will see the final judgment of all time. There's actually four judgments that are spoken of in Scripture that we're going to study during this series. But the second resurrection, which is the resurrection of the lost, the lost of all time, will be brought before the living God at the great white throne judgment. And then eternity future will start where God will make a new heaven and a new earth and the new Jerusalem where your loved ones who know Jesus are this moment, that city will literally physically come down and sit on a brand new planet in a brand new universe. Now with that said, the judgment that we're going to study this morning, the judgment of the just, is not a judgment to determine where you will spend eternity. It is a judgment simply to determine how you will spend eternity. It's the judgment only of saved people, not to be confused with the great white throne judgment that is only comprised of lost people. This is not a judgment of punishment. This is a judgment of rewards. And so Christians need to be participating, uh, or I should say anticipating, in the judgment of the just. Why? Because what you think about it will determine how you live now. And how you live now will determine how God will reward you when you reach heaven's shores. And so while this topic may be new to hundreds of you this morning, and I know it is between the two services and our two campuses, for some of us, you've heard of it for many, many years. But as I did myself this week, this is an opportunity to do some personal evaluation and reflection to see how well I am preparing for the judgment of the just. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in fact, hold your finger here, just turn over to the next book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for just a moment. We're going to flip back and forth between those two portions of Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, in a verse 10, where again this judgment is described, and I want to use this verse as an introduction to what we're going to look at in 1 Corinthians 3. There the apostle said, for we must all, please note, circle that little word, all. Say to yourself, God is talking about me this morning. That is, if you are a believer, then with the apostle Paul, we, meaning Paul and all the believers to whom he is writing, we will stand at this judgment. Again, different from the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, 11 to 15. At that judgment, the only people who are present at the lost. At this judgment, the only people who are present are the saved. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, 
whether good or bad. So again, this is not the final judgment of the unsaved. This is what will happen to all of God's people. In fact, in a parallel text in Romans 14 and verse 12, the Apostle Paul told the church at Rome, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now with that said, let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Follow along in your Bibles. Paul says to the Corinthians, according to the grace of God which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But let each man be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, those three beautiful, very costly things are one thing versus the next category, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed, or some of your Bibles say it is to be tested with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. That is, whether it's of the quality of wood, hay, or stubble, or whether it is the quality of gold, silver, and precious stones. Verse 14, if any man's work, which he has built on it, remains, that is on the foundation, if it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. These are some of the most sobering thoughts I think a believer can read in all of Holy Scripture. Each one of us, without exception, is going to meet the Lord in heaven eye to eye and give an evaluation of our Christian life. Now, some people think, well, I'm saved, I'm born again, I am promised a space in heaven. It really doesn't matter how I lived. I'll not have to give an account for the way I've prayed. I'll not have to give an account for the way I've witnessed. I'll not have to give an account for the way I've given to the Lord's work. I'll not have to give an account for the way I've served or sacrificed for the kingdom. It will make no difference because God is an equal opportunity employer. Oh, it will make a difference. And Paul wants us to understand precisely how. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we will see today that this judgment seat will have eternal implications for the believer in heaven. Now, unfortunately, as a whole, largely in evangelicalism today, this judgment is either seriously neglected or it's willfully diluted to what it actually says. So let's put some balance here. On the one hand, the Bible promises there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. So when we speak of the judgment seat of Christ, we're not talking about some evangelical purgatory where you suffer and somehow are punished. In fact, there's no such thing as purgatory. That's a man-made doctrine. It's not found anywhere in Scripture, but it is certainly a logical doctrine if you deny justification by grace alone through faith alone, as those who made up the doctrine do, as they taught in the Council of Trent, as they reaffirmed at Vatican I, Vatican II, and in 2010 at the College of Cardinals, a denial of the gospel itself, then purgatory is logical. If you don't do enough works in this life, then you will suffer for a period of time before you are plunged into heaven. 
But there's no condemnation. In fact, Paul will remind us at the end of Romans 8 that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He'll say in Romans 8 that no one, absolutely no one, can bring a charge against God's elect. Now, I love Romans 8.1. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole chapter. There is therefore now, not later, not possibly, but now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, the Bible teaches there's a judgment that we will face, not a judgment of condemnation, but of reward. In fact, for those of us who have been saved, the Bible teaches that in the past, we have been judged as sinners. In the present, we are being judged as sons, but in the future, we'll be judged as servants. For the Christian, there's a past, present, and future judgment. In the past, Well, that judgment is over if I've received Jesus as Lord. No condemnation. It's called justification. I've been declared righteous. Jesus, in my place, on the cross, at Golgotha, bore the punishment for all of my sin, past, present, and future, which is why Jesus can say in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, not will have, but has today, this moment, I hope you have eternal life. It's not something out there in the future. It's something you secure in this life. And if you have it, it's eternal. You can't lose it. And the person who has eternal life does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. That's why Paul can say there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I had to be held for one half, if I had to be held accountable for one half of one sin I've ever committed... I would fry forever under the wrath of Almighty God. He is infinitely holy. He is infinitely perfect. And that's why he sent his infinitely perfect son to die on the cross in our place so that we could be forgiven. So to bring the Christian into judgment for some sin they committed before they were saved or after they were saved or some sin that was left unconfessed is to basically deny the sufficiency and the efficacy of the cross where Jesus can say, to tell us die paid in full. I won't have to face the great white throne in judgment. Only unbelievers will. So there is another judgment. While I've been judged in the past as a sinner, I am being judged in the present as a son. Listen to these words. It's a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. The writer of the Hebrews says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Day by day, God chastises those who are his. He does it sometimes in a corrective way. Other times, he does it in an instructive way. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to God's university. Sometimes it's not always pleasant. It's not pleasant to go to God's woodshed. Sometimes he has to correct us. And by the way, Paul reminded the Corinthians that if we would judge ourselves rightly, the Lord wouldn't have to judge us. Listen to these words. He said, if we judged ourselves truly... We would not be judged, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so when we say, Father, I was wrong, I truly turn from this sin, you don't need to spank me to convince me that what I'm doing is displeasing, then when we judge it that way, God doesn't have to correct it. 
But sometimes, again, the discipline of the Lord is just in an instructive way. You're not doing anything wrong. You're just walking with God. But he's bringing new avenues into your life that he wants to make more like the Lord Jesus. So in the past, sin has been judged. And so the scripture can say, there is sin in their lawless deeds I remember no more. Doesn't mean that God has a, a case of divine amnesia. He just doesn't hold it against you. In the present, he's dealing with us as his children. To those who've received Christ, those alone, has he given the authority, the right, the power to be deemed children of God. But in the future, he will judge me as a servant. And this is the judgment that we are looking at today. Not the great right throne judgment, but what's called the bematos, the bema judgment, the judgment of the just. And so it's very possible to have a saved soul, but a lost life. And I hope we'll be able to see that. And this is important truth, not just for us personally, but for all those that God would give us the disciple. And if you have children or grandchildren who know Jesus, especially them. Now, again, back to the chart here. The next great event is the catching up, the rapture of the church. And what the rapture of the church brings is a period of time known as the day of the Lord. Sometimes the word day is used, yom in Hebrew, of one day, and it's always used that way when accompanied by a number. So Moses said in six days, God created the heavens and the earth. He goes back and looks at Genesis. He doesn't say in six long days or six days with gaps in between, but in six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, he rested. But sometimes the term day, yom, is used to refer to a period of time, like the day of your youth. Here, the day of the Lord, and it mimics a biblical day. A biblical day goes from sundown to sundown. And so I believe we're in the shadows of the tribulation. It hasn't come yet, but God is setting the stage for the tribulation to come. You don't want to miss next week's message, because we'll see precisely what Jesus said in reference to that. So it will get darker and darker and pitch black during the time of the great tribulation, the worst time in all of human history. But then Jesus comes back. He removes all the unbelievers. Only believers will enter into the kingdom. And there'll be a bright and glorious, magnificent day that will last for a thousand years. But the children of tribulation saints, which we'll see demands a pre-tribulational rapture because believers in glorified bodies can't have children. Some of their children and grandchildren over the course of a thousand years which they will live will rebel against God's Messiah. So at the end of the millennium, the devil will be loose and it will get dark again and then we'll go into eternity future. So that's kind of where we are. You following me? All right. So if you're new to this series, I think this is the ninth or tenth message in the series. They're all online at searchthescriptures.org. It might be helpful to you this morning. So what we're looking at is an unprecedented time. And we know it's in the future, and we know it's after the church is caught up for at least five reasons. Let me give them to you. Number one is you read the Gospels like Luke 14, 12 to 14. Jesus reminds us that the rewards that he is going to give are associated with the resurrection of the righteous. When does the resurrection of the righteous happen for believers? At the rapture, when we are caught up. Secondly, Revelation 19 and verse 8, 
when the Lord returns, it's obvious from that chapter that the bride of Christ has already been rewarded. They're dressed in fine linen. Sometimes fine linen is used in the Revelation to describe the righteousness that God has credited to your account. But sometimes, as in Revelation 19.8, it's defined as the righteous acts of the saints. That means they've already been evaluated and rewarded as you let Scripture interpret Scripture. Three, Second Timothy 4.8 points to the judgment as in the future. Jesus uh, wrote through the Apostle Paul, the end of his life, Paul said, when the Lord, the righteous judge, will reward me on that day. Fourth, 1 Corinthians 4 in verse 5, we are admonished that we are not to try to judge the motives of other preachers and Christians. Now, we can judge what they say. We can judge their doctrine. We're commanded to do that, but we can't judge their motives because only God can read the heart. And so Paul says, wait until Jesus comes back at the rapture, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart. Fifth, we know that this must take place in this time frame because when Christ comes to rule at the second coming for a thousand years, he is going to give authority and responsibility to believers who have already been evaluated. Now, with that said, there are many truths that we're going to look at, but there are three principal truths I want us to focus on concerning the judgment of the just. If you're taking notes, there's a note-taking outline. You can print it out online. First, let's consider the judgment seat of Christ as a place of revelation. The Bible is clear. The judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. Again, flip back to 2 Corinthians for a moment, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Paul says, therefore, also we have as our ambition, whether at home in this body or absent in heaven, to be pleasing to him. Now, most of you know that there's what the Bible calls as selfish ambition, that's self-centered, that's worldly. And then there's a holy ambition that Paul is describing. And Paul's great ambition was to be pleasing to Jesus. He was in terms of his justification, but he wants to be pleasing to Jesus in terms of his sanctification. And many of the preachers in Paul's day, like in our day, served to please men, man-pleasers. And when you're a man pleaser, when you're concerned about how people are going to evaluate you, what they're going to think about you as a pastor, then you're going to compromise the truth in order to please men. But Paul then goes on in the next verse, and he tells us why his drive, his ambition is to be pleasing to the Lord. For, it's a causal in Greek, because you could render it, because... We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for the deeds in his body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, you may be asking, Pastor, how do we know for certain that this judgment that Paul is referring to concerns only believers? Well, I've already noted the first person pronoun. If you think Paul was saved, then it's only believers. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Secondly, since Paul in the context is describing that events that can only happen to a believer, he has just spoken it as being at home with the Lord. Look at verses seven and eight. For we walk by faith, not by sight, 
We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. The moment you die, you're absent from this physical body, you're present with the Lord. Your soul doesn't sleep in the grave, as our dear Seventh-day Adventist friends falsely teach. Third, the context also indicates that this can only refer to believers because the chapter opened in verse 1, if you're looking at your text. Some of you need to bring a Bible. Some of you are here for the first time and you don't own a Bible. Come to our next Meet the Pastor and you'll get a beautiful Bible. The chapter opens speaking of a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Again, that's the context, believers in heaven. He likens this body that you and I are in this morning to a tent. You know, tents are temporary. They get holes in them, they leak, they get old. But a house, well, that's more of a permanent structure, and that's the analogy he uses of our resurrection body. Fourth, he reminds us in verse five that the spirit is given as a pledge, as an earnest, as a down payment to those who are saved. Again, he's speaking to believers only. And fifth, it's a little more of a technical argument from the Greek, but we can follow it. God says he's going to evaluate our works, be they good or bad. Now, the word bad here is not the typical word for bad, porneros or kakos. It speaks of moral evil like pornography, porneros. We get our word from it. He uses a different word. He uses the word polos, and it is bad in terms of something that is worthless. And so Paul is going to show us this morning the judgment of the just. Your works will either be enduring or they will be worthless, acceptable or worthless. Now, as I've told you before, many times the Greek word for judgment seat is the word bematos. So the word judgment seat is translating one word, bematos. So sometimes we put the article in front of it and we speak of the bema. Now here's a picture of a bema. This is an artist's rendition to Jesus standing before the bema of Pilate. Pilate, we're told, is at the bematos. He's at the judgment seat. And there, of course, the bema is to mete out punishment. Uh, The Apostle Paul, some of you went with me in a tour we did many years ago called the Footsteps of Paul, and we went to Corinth, and we saw almost an identical Bema from the first century, the very one that Paul stood before when he was there in Acts 18. Again, it's a place of evaluation. It's also used, the Bema, as a place of rewards. For instance, judges would stand on the Bema toss during the Isthmian Games, and you might have two athletes that would compete, and they would be given rewards accordingly. And so one would receive a, um, a reward of the perishable green coveted wreath, and the one who lost the race, well, his head wasn't cut off. He just didn't receive a reward. And so this is not a tribunal to see whether you are saved or lost. One second after you die, it's already been determined by the choice of what you did with Jesus. Listen, he's not just another miracle worker. He's not just another prophet. He claims to be God in human flesh, and he said there's no way to the Father but through him. And so what you do with Jesus will determine what God does with you. But it's possible at the Bamatos to have invested your life as a believer in a way that was 
wasteful. And so it's going to be judged. It's going to be evaluated. Your service, your stewardship, the works done in the body are going to be evaluated as good or bad. Now, I recognize if you read the context of 1 Corinthians 3 carefully, he's dealing primarily with pastors. He's talking about different pastors who come into different cities, who uh, lay a foundation through the preaching of the gospel, and then what kind of material they are using to build God's church. And sadly, there's a lot of pastors who use the wrong kind of materials. And Paul's admonition is, unless you're using the Bible, the Word of God, as central to the building material, it's worthless. And sadly, we live in a day where worthless churches are overflowing Because the pastor gets up there and he's entertaining. He's entertaining the goats. He's not feeding the sheep. And sadly, he is not teaching the word of God, which is absolutely essential. Now, again, while the context is revealing a revelation to pastors, the application extends to all Christians in light of what we just read in 2 Corinthians 5 and in light of what Paul says in Romans 14, 12. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, notice, if you will, verse 10 for just a moment, verse 10. He said, according to the grace of God, which was given to me like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. Now, if you remember from the Acts of the Apostles, Paul was the very first one to preach to the Corinthians. He laid the foundation through the preaching of the gospel. He's already stated in 1 Corinthians 2 to the Corinthians that he preached nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God used him to lay the foundation. The foundation is laid through the proclamation of the gospel. Understand that the foundation is critical The foundation of a building determines its shape, its strength, its superstructure, all that is put upon it. In someone's life and ministry, if they are building on the wrong foundation, is useless. And if they are building on the foundation, which is Christ, understand the foundation, the rock is Jesus. He's the cornerstone. The church is not built on some pope. It's built on the Lord Jesus. He is the foundation. But if you use the wrong kinds of materials, either as a pastor or as a Christian, then you're not going to build the kind of house God wants you to build. I've been in ministry now for nearly 45 years of full-time ministry. I've seen a lot of famous pastors, some come and go, and different methodologies and techniques and church growth uh, improvisions that we should supposedly use in the church. And many of those ministries have collapsed. So Paul is saying, pastor, Christian, serve the Lord in a way that's pleasing to him. Have as your ambition to build on the foundation, but make sure you use gold, silver, precious stone kind of material and not wood, hay, and stubble kind of material. And by the way, the building that he is building is the local church. And that's where God's emphasis is in Scripture. Nothing wrong with being involved in a parachurch, but if all your uh, involvement is out there somewhere with the parachurch, you've put your focus on the wrong thing. 
The primary point of evaluation that God will give is how you serve in the local assembly, how you serve in the local church. So again, the foundation is Christ. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is Jesus Christ. And so this is one of three figures that God uses to describe a coming future evaluation. And the first figure concerns a building. Now notice verse 12, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, and some believers are using gold, silver, and precious stones, and they are doing a magnificent work for Christ, and they are helping to build a magnificent temple. The others, they're using gold, hay, uh, and stubble, which are cheap, which are temporary, that are combustible when tested with fire. Now he adds in verse 13, each man's work will become evident for the day, this day of evaluation. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So gold, silver, precious stones, they picture something that is permanent, wood, hay, and stubble, something that is temporary. And all of these works that we do fall into one of those two categories, and we will know what sort they are when God tests them with fire. God will test the quality of each man's work. So the day is coming when God will look at your work, especially that service done in relationship to the local assembly, and he will look at how you serve. The fire will test the quality. You say, well, I'm interested in quantity. Well, you should be. But you need to be interested in far more in quantity. You need to be interested in quality. The King James says, what sort? The Net Bible, the Young's Literal Translation says, what kind? And so, what would you rather have? A truckload of hay or a handful of diamonds? I don't know about you, I'd rather have a handful of diamonds. In fact, I'd rather have a bucket of diamonds. (laughs) But listen. Quality is critically important in this evaluation because God is going to evaluate the eternal value of your service. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Timothy 2 and in verse 5. There he writes, and also if anyone competes, and again, this is one of three analogies that describe the future judgment, that of a race. And if anyone competes in the race, he does not win the prize unless... He competes according to the rules. You have to play according to the rules. And so God will describe sometimes this coming judgment as an athletic contest. And so in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul, who had been saved for 25 years, writes this. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. So they do it to obtain a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So if you break the rules, if you don't do it God's way, you won't receive a reward. Now, Paul, if you remember the context, says, I don't want to be disqualified from the ministry. Save for 25 years. A great apostle. I don't want to be disqualified. I want to run the race well all the way to the very end, which he's able to say in his final epistle in the New Testament. 
But Paul recognized that what men were doing in the race of life was simply for something that was perishable. But believers, we are seeking after something that is imperishable. So we might ask, well, what are the criteria by which God evaluates our works, be they good or worthless? What are the standards that would make some of those works, gold, silver, and precious stones, and other works, nothing more than wood, hay, and stubble? Well, I'm glad you've asked that question. So let's think our way through it very, very critically. There are at least three critical aspects by which God will evaluate our works. First of all, he will evaluate what you do. He will evaluate what you do. Do you think it will make a difference in eternity when two saved people, side by side, one serves consistently and faithfully, and the other does not? One uh, is here to honor the Lord's day, the first day of the week, because God commands us to do that. He gathers with the saints on Sunday. You might not be able to come to a Thursday night or Wednesday night meeting, but Sunday is when God's people are called to gather. Uh, That person uses his spiritual gifts. Each one of you has been given a spiritual gift. If you don't know what that is, you might consider the spiritual gifts inventory. I wrote it myself. I did my doctoral dissertation on spiritual gifts, and it's 128 questions, and it might help you to see what of those 20 spiritual gifts in the New Testament you have. Uh, Are you using your spiritual gifts? We're commanded to employ our spiritual gifts as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Another brother, he gives 10% of his income to the Lord. He, he teaches the word of God when God gives him opportunity, maybe not in a formal way, but in the general sense in which all Christians, as they mature in Christ, are called to do, Hebrews 5. He's a person who intercedes for the church, prays for its activities, prays for its missionaries, prays for its outreaches. And then you have another Christian. Well, he, he, he comes when it's convenient. If it doesn't interfere with his schedule too much, he doesn't really come to serve. He just comes to receive. He's never really earnestly prayed for anything in the life of the church. He doesn't tithe. He's not involved in reaching out and trying to win people for Jesus. That demands self-denial. It demands discipline. It demands hard work. He rarely, if ever, serves. Question, both are saved by the grace of God. Will it make a difference in eternity? You better believe it will. There'll be a clear difference. God would not be just if he didn't reward his saints accordingly. God's word teaches plainly in 1 Peter 4.10 that each one of us will give an account as stewards. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul exhorts the church there to make the most of their time. Why? Because the days are evil. And contextually, he says the way you make the most of your time is to learn the word of God and to be filled with the spirit. So listen, if you're consumed with yourself and your stuff, and your hobbies, and your TV, and your social media sites, and you're just wasting your time, it will make a difference in eternity. So God, among other things, will look at what you do. Secondly, the New Testament teaches God will look at even what you attempted to do. 
When God judges you, he will not simply judge you for what you do. He will also judge us for what we attempted to do. Do you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple as recorded in 1 Kings 8? And he gave his father the credit for the idea and even the gathering of all the materials and his desire to build that temple. Let me read to you from 1 Kings 8, verses 17 and 18. Solomon tells us, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house, the temple, for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Because it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. Which reminds me that God simply doesn't look at what you've done. He looks at what you've attempted to do. And there are many examples we could look at. I think of those five missionaries who graduated from Wheaton College at a time when it was still Bible-believing. They've gone south. Sadly, I wouldn't send my dog there. By the way, we are witnessing what God said would happen at the end of time. This apostasy, this falling away from the faith. But those men, Jim Elliott, most of you know him, his wife, Elizabeth Elliott, and they spent their life preparing and praying to go and reach the Aka Indians with the gospel. And finally, through the course of time, as they make an attempt after several days, all five missionaries are slaughtered. Do you think at the judgment of the just, the Lord Jesus will say, no reward for you, You didn't reach any of the Aka. In fact, what they did laid the foundation for Elizabeth and others who came in behind. And to this day, because of what they did, there's an indigenous church that is preaching and honoring the Lord Jesus Christ. When I was a new Christian, we sang a hymn that we don't really sing much anymore, but it's a very poignant hymn. Let me read one stanza. Must I go empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior so? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? Now we have people assembled here in Grays, in Graniteville, and on most Sundays people listening all across the country and all around the world. I just wonder how many of us are attempting to win someone to Jesus. In the last service, we had a couple come down and Walter and Devin reached out to their new neighbors and they had never been to our church before until Thursday night, came to meet the pastor. They both received Christ as their Lord and Savior, came down front this morning and confessed it and said they want to be baptized as new believers and to join this church. Praise God. Now, I don't think God will look at you in the judgment and say, shame on you because you didn't win a single person to Jesus. Though I do think because he has commissioned us to go and bear fruit, and the fruit he is referring to contextually in John 15 is not simply the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of a conversion. And if you will consistently, earnestly, faithfully attempt to reach out to people, whether it's inviting them to church, sharing your testimony, sharing the plan of salvation, sooner or later, you'll see someone coming to the kingdom. I don't think God will say, though, shame on you because you didn't win anyone to Jesus. But he might say, shame on you, and that it wasn't even in your heart to win someone to Jesus. 
And so God, in evaluating the quality, he looks at what you do. He also looks at what you attempted to do. Third, jot this down, he looks at why you did it. Now remember in the context, the apostle Paul has been contrasting the natural man, the unsaved man, with the supernatural spirit-filled believer, the carnal believer, with the one who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit. So the person who walks in the power of the Holy Spirit serves the Lord not in his strength, but in God's strength. Whereas the person who is walking in his own fleshly desires, he typically serves for self, for the praise of men, for the pat on the back, but not for the living God. Now understand there's a lot of people who do work for the kingdom and they work hard and as this judgment will reveal someday, it doesn't mean much to the Lord. They give, but God's not pleased with their giving. They sing, but God is not pleased with their singing. They pray, but their prayers are not answered. You know, it's possible to pray, but not pray. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. They think, I'm doing this all for the living God. But God is not pleased because their motivation is wrong. Listen to these words in chapter 4 and verse 5. If you turn over to the next page or look across the page, Paul says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will bring both to, who will bring who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, then each man's praise will come to him from God. So God is looking at motive, why you did what you did. Later on in chapter 9, Paul will make a profound statement. In chapter 9 and verse 16, he said, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The Apostle Paul was not only a believer, and we've all been commissioned to preach the gospel, but he was a called apostle, he was a called pastor, he was a called man of God, a called preacher. And Paul is saying, I can't get out of this. God has called me to preach. I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. And I know how he, is, how he felt. I, I can't imagine myself doing anything else and being a pastor than being a preacher. And when I think about it, my, my, my mind just comes back to what God has called me to do. And as long as I, as, I, as I have physical strength and the acuity of mind, I will do it by the grace of God until the day he takes me home. Now, there are times when I want to quit. <laughs> More than one Monday, I've quit. And before the end of the day, I've rehired myself. <laughs> but listen, I can't think of doing anything but preaching the gospel, I'm under compulsion. But look at the next verse. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with a commission, nonetheless. Paul is telling us that the unwilling servant does not get a reward. Those of you who sang in the choir this morning, those of you ushering, those of you teaching children, teaching adults, serving in the nursery, why are you doing it? Well, I tithe because the Bible commands me, say, to tithe. God neither needs nor wants your tithe like he is bankrupt. The earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and all who dwell in it. God loves a cheerful giver. He looks at attitude. We're not to be like those Pharisees, those religious men 
who literally had someone sound a little trumpet to introduce their giving to those large containers outside of the temple. Jesus said they did it to be noticed by men, and then he said, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. When you do things for the praise of men, that's the reward you'll get, the praise of men. So God looks at what we do, God looks at what we attempted to do, and God looks at why we did it. Listen to these words in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus said, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. Those of you who will help keep missionaries at the coming mission conference this fall, those of you who help pastors, who serve men of God who are called in the ministry, God looks at that. You will receive a prophet's reward. It's a magnificent promise. Now listen to verse 42. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Now he's not talking about the preacher. Now he's not talking about the missionary. Here we are this morning in this beautifully climate-controlled building where it's a cooker outside. We're in a house of worship. It's peaceful. It's quiet. You don't hear any of the kids screaming, do you? Why? Because next door in the nursery, some of those people are tirelessly not just teaching some children, but entertaining others to keep them happy so your number won't have to come up here. Anthony Vaughn some years ago gave me a sign to put in the nursery. It said it all. It was from 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. <laughs> Listen, even a cup of cold water, God sees it. When you walk down these hallways today and you greet someone you've never met, when you give a hug to a believer who needs it or a handshake, God sees it all. Whether you're a Billy Graham or a nursery worker, God will evaluate all that we've done and he will reward us for it. But God is looking at motivation. God is looking at what we've done and what we've attempted to do. Now, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. That's the first point. Are you tracking with me? Say amen. All right, secondly, the judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward. Not only is it a place of revelation, it is a place of reward. Let's continue further here in 1 Corinthians 3 in verse 13. He says, each man's work will become evident for the day, the, the evaluation day. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. But then God promises in verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it, that is the foundation remains, he will receive a reward. Now some Christian people in their ignorance do not believe in heavenly rewards. They are under the impression that heaven is the same for everyone. But clearly the Bible teaches there are degrees of reward in heaven. Paul has already said in chapter 3 here and in verse 8 that each one will receive his own reward according to his labor. You cannot receive my reward. I cannot receive your reward. Each of us will receive our own reward. 
at the end of the Bible, Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And so he says then in the final recorded words spoken of Jesus, yes, I am coming quickly. He's speaking to the elder this morning. He's speaking to the deacon. He's speaking to the staff member. He's speaking to all of us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Behold, he's trying to get our attention. I'm coming quickly, meaning suddenly, in a moment's time, and I'm going to render to every man according to what he has done. We'll see this before we're done at the judgment of the lost, and it is also true at the judgment of the saved. You're saved by grace, but you are rewarded, the Bible teaches, according to what you have done. Listen to the words in Matthew 16, 27. Jesus said, therefore, the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. So I'm sharing with some of you who have the false impression that heaven will be the same for all, that it's not. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? If heaven is the same for everyone, then this command that he gives makes zero sense. He said to his people, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. May I tell you that this verse makes zero sense if we all receive the same reward. He is exhorting us to lay up treasure in heaven. And at the judgment of seed of Christ, what we've laid up, if it's done for his glory, for his honor, and the power of the Holy Spirit, it will indeed be rewarded. Now, God doesn't see the way man sees. Remember the prophet Samuel, he was called to go and anoint one of Jesse's sons and he saw Eliab and he said, surely the Lord's anointed. And God said, no, he, he's not my man. He's a good man, but he's not the man I want as king because you see, I don't see the way a man sees and God will not see the way we see. Do you remember Mark chapter 12 when the crowds were so impressed with the religious leaders as they blew their trumpet and poured large sums of money into the treasury horns? Jesus said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow, this poor widow who comes up with two mites, don't speak of the widow's mite, there's no such thing. She had two mites, which was an equivalent to about a penny. She came, he said, truly, I say to you, this poor widow <clears throat> put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now, he did not say she gave more than any of them. He said she gave more than all of them put together. And no doubt, down through the centuries, this woman has motivated more people to give millions of dollars to the cause of Christ. We look at a gift and say, oh, a $100,000 gift, that's fantastic. Many times it is, and it is fantastic because it was given with the right motivation. But this poor widow, where there are two mites, gave everything she had, and the Lord was so impressed. It will become clear in the future. Remember Mary of Bethany? 
there just six days before Jesus is crucified, one of the many anointings in Scripture. Don't blend them together. There's four. And she broke that expensive alabaster vial and poured it at his feet. And she was criticized. Oh, this could have been used to maybe help some poor people. And Jesus blessed her for what she did. And he said, what she did will be remembered as long as the gospel is preached. And I'm remembering her this morning. Listen, you serve Jesus, you're going to be criticized. You serve him out of a right heart, faithful to the word of God, which is becoming less and less popular, you're going to be criticized. You know, in some days when Christians are criticized or they're overlooked or no one expresses appreciation for the slaving labor they give, they just, they just melt. There's coming a day when there's going to be a great reversal where the first will be last and the last will be first. You say, well, what are all the implications of these eternal rewards? Well, let me begin by saying again, this is not a judgment that's punitive in any sense for any sin you've committed or any unconfessed sin. That has been satisfied and dealt with at the cross. The Bible is clear that you're not saved by the house you build. You're saved if you're on the foundation, and the foundation is Christ. You can only be on the foundation if you've trusted him as Lord and Savior. But with that said, how you build on that foundation becomes critical. Think of it this way. Suppose you have a ledger, and on one side you have all these credits, and on the other side you have all these debits. Well, if you've been justified, if you've been declared righteous, the debit side with all your sin is gone. There's nothing there. But the credit side looks at your works that were done that are of gold, silver, and precious stones. And God will reward you for those. And while there's a lot of silence in Scripture as to all of the eternal implications, it doesn't change the fact that I'm commanded to lay up treasure in heaven. Now, we do have some inklings as to its implications. Listen to these words, Matthew 25, 51, 21. Jesus said, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Speaking of the coming kingdom, Luke records in the 19th chapter, the 17th verse, and he said to him, Jesus said, well done, good slave, because you've been faithful in a very little thing, you will be in authority over 10 cities. So Matthew 25, Luke 19, together affirm that God will reward some with many things and others with many cities. Meaning during the millennial reign of Christ, during his thousand-year reign, there will be various degrees of responsibility and reward. There will be leadership opportunities, not to mention when the door in heaven is opened, Revelation 4.1, and so the church is never mentioned again in Revelation 4 through 18 until she comes back with Jesus in Revelation 19 because we're in heaven. In Revelation 4, we see the elders who take their crowns, which is one expression of rewards. God speaks of different crowns in Scripture. What do they do with those crowns? Do they wear them like peacocks? Of course not. They cast them at the feet of the Lord Jesus. 
and they worship him. And so one aspect of rewards is indeed worship, and Daniel underscores that same truth, that some will shine brighter than others through all of eternity. So there's worship, there's responsibility, there's certainly opportunity, and so lay up treasure in heaven. Listen to these words, 1 John 4. We love because he first loved us, and then he says... For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So why should I lay up treasure in heaven? Is God putting some kind of standard on me, some kind of pressure on me to perform? Any command God gives you, any command, we do it because of this new position he's given us. Because we are under grace. Because we can't do anything to make ourselves more acceptable. We can't do anything to make ourselves unacceptable. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are new creations. We are saints of God. So we love him because he first loved us. We obey out of love. You know, God isn't looking, as it's often said by preachers, for people of great ability, but people of great availability. In other words, you're available. You are yielded to the Spirit of God. You are filled with the Spirit. And if you don't know what that means, you should go to the discovery class. There are four commands that relate to the filling of the Spirit that every believer needs to know. But if you are filled with the Spirit as much as you know how to be, when you obey what you know, you will grow. And God teaches, not only are we not saved by works, but in Ephesians 2.10, he says in the next verse, we're saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. God has a plan for your life, a tailored plan for your life. And when you are filled with the Spirit and your mind is being renewed with Scripture, God begins to unfold that plan. And as you live in the Spirit, as you serve Him in the Spirit in eternity, He rewards you for it. It's a magnificent arrangement. So God may expect more of some than others. I suppose He expects more of a Billy Graham or a Spurgeon and of a full-time staff member than He might of some other people. Jesus made it clear that some believers are five-talent Christians And some believers are one-talent Christians. God knows what he has given to you. And he'll take that all into account such that even a cup of cold water given in Jesus' name will be rewarded. So the judgment seat of Christ is a place of revelation. The judgment seat of Christ is a place of reward. Third and finally, very quickly, the judgment seat of Christ will be a place of regret. Look now, if you will, at verse 15 of this chapter. It's one of the most challenging verses in the whole chapter, I suppose. Let me back it up to verse 13 so we get the flow. Each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Now verse 15, if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. And so the judgment seat of Christ will be a place of regret. Have you ever thought about the fact that you can lose the reward that God has for you? Listen to these words in Matthew 10, 42. Again, I just read it. Whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. Implication, it's possible to lose your reward. It's possible for your service to go up in smoke. Some people 
are building what others think are, is a magnificent house. And while it may be made out of mahogany, it's made out of wood and it's combustible. Did you know that God has a reward that he wants you to achieve? Again, you walk in the spirit, you will live that life that God has prepared beforehand for you to walk in it. Listen to 1 John 2, 28. And now, little children, abide in him. That is, keep on serving him. Don't quit, don't backslide. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, this is different from the Gospels where Jesus speaks of unbelievers of whom Jesus is ashamed of. They're unwilling to openly confess him before men. You're not saved by walking an aisle like this or some Billy Graham crusade, but I want to tell you the scripture is clear that if you are saved on the inside, you won't be ashamed on the outside. And Jesus will be ashamed of the unbelievers who are willing to identify with him, and so he will not be able to identify them before his father as his own. But that's not what this verse is speaking of. John is dealing with Christians who are ashamed of themselves, who shrink in shame when they see Jesus, and they say, oh, I wasted so much of my life. And so listen to these words in 2 John verse 8. Watch yourselves that you may not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Some believers, because they do not guard their hearts, they lose the progress that they have, and they do not receive the full reward that God wants. So Jesus said it in Revelation 3 and verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have in order that no one take your crown. That's what he's talking about, losing the reward where your works are burned up. And so if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Saved, yet so is through fire. What does that mean? Now remember, the foundation is Christ. And if you have Christ as your foundation, the foundation remains. You are eternally secure. But if you have a life of service, of wood, hay, and stubble, it will be burned up. Saved, we used to say, but singed. You'll be in heaven, but your coattails will be smoking. Now, I know the average carnally-minded Christian, I know the way he thinks, well, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. I'm just happy I'm going, and God, you can just give me a little old log cabin in the corner of heaven, and I'll be satisfied. No, you won't. You will suffer loss. And if you reason consistently that way, it may mean that you've never even been born again. You will suffer loss. Suppose you are a person who doesn't believe in banks, and you put your whole life into the house that you own. You build it with the finest materials, mahogany staircases, marble floors, beautiful chandeliers, all your money, stocks and bonds. They're hidden in the mattresses and in the walls. All of your precious metals, your jewels, it's all wrapped up in this home. And you're asleep one night and you wake up and the room is filled with smoke and you begin to choke and cough and you shake your wife and say, I'm going to get the kids. And you run down to the other end of the house and there's a wall of fire that's impenetrable. 
And you can't get your kids, you turn around and you go back to get your wife and, and now the ceiling has already been engulfed with flames and it has collapsed over her head. Finally, as you see the fire running up and down the walls, smoke all over your clothes, embers in your hairs, you don't know what to do but to jump out the window to save yourself. And you're on the ground and you get up and you brush yourself off and you say, hallelujah, I made it. I'm saved. No, you wouldn't say that. Knowing your wife died, having heard the shrieks of your own children, and all that you invested in up in smoke, you wouldn't say that. Do you know that there are Christians who will have deep regret at the judgment seat of Christ? And some of you, when you get to heaven, you're going to find out that some of your loved ones and friends are in hell because you didn't care enough to even share the gospel with them. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. The judgment seat of Christ is indeed a time of reward, but it's also a time of regret. I suppose it might be like a graduation a commencement exercise, thousands of graduates. There's a sense in which all are grateful that they finished the course, they've got the diploma in hand. But some have a little disappointment in their hearts. I thought I should have worked harder, I could have had a higher GPA and maybe gotten into graduate school with a scholarship, or I could have done this, or I could have done that. But overall, there's just a sense of satisfaction that the course has been finished. And I suppose in some respects, heaven will be like that. Remember, you won't have a sin nature, so you won't be envious of anyone. And there will be a sense of satisfaction that you're there, but remember, it's in heaven that God wipes away every tear from our eye. But there may be some inner disappointment. Why didn't I serve the Lord more faithfully? We, we, we don't want to overemphasize the judgment where we make heaven like hell, but neither do we want to minimize it where we think there's no real accountability because there is. If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus as Lord, I hope you are clear that we're not talking this morning at the judgments of the just about how to get to heaven. God either saves you through the finished work of Christ, through his blood sacrifice, where you put your faith, where he put his sin, or he doesn't save you at all. And if you're not 100% sure, typically it means you're not saved and you've got doubt in the back of your mind because you're not sure you're good enough, and God's word would announce to you you're not good enough and you never can be. You need a righteousness you cannot achieve or earn, but a righteousness that is imputed and gifted to you when you call upon Jesus in faith. But to those of us who have met the Lord Jesus and who are saved, the eyes of the Lord still move throughout the earth, looking that he might fully support the heart that is completely his. We need to hear Paul's words to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Some of you know this passage so well you can teach it. As I poured through this portion of Scripture, I said, Lord, search my heart. I don't want regrets at the judgment of the just. I want to receive the full reward that you have ordained for me that I might lay it at the feet of Christ and worship him. Our Father, your son says, I am coming quickly and his reward is with him and he will render every man according to his deeds, even the lost. I pray today for someone within the sound of my voice that in humility they would say, Lord Jesus, save me. But for those of us who have crossed that line, help the Spirit of God to search our souls today, to evaluate our service, to think about the opportunities that he has given us, Father, if there's something that needs to be tweaked or totally changed, we pray the Spirit of God would have freedom to show us that. That indeed he would be able to say to us, well done, thy good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen.